The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing, where each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom from the female perspective. Everything from Star Wars, to The Office, to cosplay, to fanfic. It's all right here, so sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. We're continuing our celebration of horror with a talk about representation in horror. We were going to have a big panel, but unfortunately, a few people could not make it. So it's just going to be Rebecca and I. So it'll be a little bit more intimate, a little bit different. Um, So I know we don't have as much experience with some of the topics we're going to be covering, but um, I still think it's going to be a great panel. But before I have Rebecca introduce herself and tell me something she's excited about right now, I just want to remind everyone again that we are taking listener support Uh, right now. um, You can click on the link in the show notes or go to our show page on Anchor and click listener support. And for as little as 99 cents a month, you can help the show and you can also help other people because from now on, um, and at least for the foreseeable future, at least 50% of what we see from listener support and from the one ad that we have right now that we're making money on, the two election ads that we have are charity ads. Those are a little bit different. Um, But 50% of that will go to one Black Lives Matter organization. Like I've mentioned before, I'm just going to choose one per month. So beginning of November, I will announce what organization, or I might just do it with our final episode of our Halloween celebration and just announce which organization will be getting that money in November. Um, I might do and just have it be like the end of November and they'll get whatever we have from October through the end of November. But I'll see what happens there. Um, So I'm just going to have Rebecca introduce herself and just tell me one thing in pop culture that you're excited about right now. Hi, Erin. Thank you for having me back on the show again. I'm Rebecca Jacobson. And what I'm really excited about in pop culture right now, I've gotten really into the horror films of Ari Aster, so Hereditary and Midsommar. And I've been rewatching Midsommar a lot as it is currently on Amazon Prime. I think it's one of the most beautiful horror films ever made. So... If I run away and join a cult in Sweden, you all know why. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, I don't know if I should be worried. No. (laughs) You might need to be worried. Should we be staging an intervention now or... And this is Aaron. And what I'm going to mention is not horror related. So I apologize. But um, what I'm into is the Netflix movie, uh, The Boys in the Band, which is a remake of um, the 60s movie. And then it's also, of course, a famous stage play. And I was really hesitant about it because, you know, it's been criticized over the years as being really out of date and lots of gay stereotypes. Um, But I really enjoyed it. I thought um, all the performances were great in it. I thought the directing was really good. 
it was, I really miss theater and this was really like watching a play. Um, so I highly recommend that one as well. I thought it was, it was really good. It's a very, very quick, fast paced um, story. So, and all the performances were really, really great in it. So, okay. So let's get into representation in horror. So I've broken this down into several different sections, but let's start with women in horror, because, of course, um, our second episode this week is uh, talking about slasher films and the final girl trope. And even in slasher films, even without the final girl part, you did have, of course, a lot of people um, had problems with misogyny and the way the male gaze was with the camera, of course, and how you had to have naked women and lots of breasts and lots of TNA, but also judging women at the same time. So I want to talk a little bit about how f- women have been represent- represented through the years in horror films. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Rebecca? Well, I think that uh, I was actually really excited to share this study with a couple of my friends who really hate horror and who f- frequently, I wouldn't say argued with me, but would frequently bring up to me that as a feminist, I should not get excited about horror films because they're very misogynistic and women are often the victims. Or again, there's a lot of exploitation, particularly from the 80s, a lot of women being naked and then getting murdered. Um, and I pointed out this recent study that was done that found looking, and I think this may have been done by the Gina Davis Institute, but I can't remember. Yes. (laughs) That looked at how often women speak in different genres of film and horror was the only genre in which across the board, women got equal speaking time to men. Mm -hmm. And, I showed this to my friends and I was like, see, (laughs) (laughs) like, look at this. I, I personally have, and we, if you want to revisit our slashers and the final girl trope episode, you'll hear us talk quite at length about this, but I do want to reiterate this idea that I have actually found that while women were often the victims in horror movies, especially early on, they also had a unique advantage of being the beautiful like turnaround heroine by the end. And I do think that there's a lot of misogynistic roots in that. There's first the idea that women are weak, women are easy victims, easy prey, can't defend themselves. And so you had, and as we discussed in our slasher episode, there's also a lot of morality judgments in horror movies they ultimately become morality tales so the woman who's promiscuous gets punished the woman who's not a churchgoer gets punished but i think that because in some ways i think misogyny helped push feminism in horror because if you want to show a character really triumphing over evil you don't it's not as effective as a writer to have the big buff dude (laughs) come in and save the day all the time. If you want to show somebody really triumphing over evil and growing and going from being the potential victim, somebody who you're really scared might actually die, especially in something like a slasher film, it only makes sense for that survivor, that triumph to be a woman 
So I think that, and I think that women watching horror have kind of taken that idea and run with it. I think we actually have a lot better representation for women in horror now than we ever have in the past. And I think that actually goes all the way back to the eighties. One of my favorite horror films ever. And one of my favorite films of all time is Carrie. And it was one of the films that really made me fall in love with the genre. And it was because I watched it and I was like, I know that this is directed by a man was written by Stephen King, but I was watching it and I was like, yeah, Finally, someone understands that teenage girls are evil, (laughs) that they can be evil on their own to each other. There was so much of that movie that I still watch it today. I rewatch it several times a year. And every time I'm like, yeah, the real evil in this film is not Carrie. It is all of these girls that she goes to high school with. And I know those girls. I think any woman listening to this will probably, if you've seen the movie Carrie, you're like, I know exactly who those girls are. And I also think of movies. And if you don't, then you're one of those girls. Sorry. I just want to. Yeah. And if you don't, you're one of those girls. (laughs) You know who you are. (laughs) I actually recently, uh, I was watching a a documentary. I think it may have been monsters in the closet about, uh, or it was another uh, vlogger on YouTube talking about representation in horror films. And he brought up The Craft, Mm -hmm. another film that I think is actually a great, in a lot of ways, a great representation for women in horror film. You have a female leading cast. You have like some very real issues that these girls are dealing with, with poverty, with broken families, with uh, assault in some cases, with racism, with like, body image problems and scarring and I like I know that it was intended to be sort of a cheesy teen like horror film and I I still watch it today and I'm like yes I want to watch these girls <laughs> gain power and destroy all of the people who've been mean to them <laughs> so I think um, I think that women actually have a pretty good place in horror now. I think that we've been able to take some of the misogynistic beginnings. Mm-hmm. And I think women have been able to use horror as a way to talk about things that make us actually afraid in our lives or things that we can use as revenge tales like Carrie and the craft. I think it's beautiful. Yeah, I think of all the thing, all the areas we're going to talk about, I think women, honestly, and it's kind of surprising to me when I look at it, but um, especially, and I would say more so with white women than necessarily um, black women or, or any people of color, I would say that with women, we have a lot more white women. We have a lot more representation in horror than in the other groups we're going to be discussing. And I think uh, the way women have been represented um, has really grown and changed a lot and improved a lot. Um, and I mean, there are still, I think with torture porn, I think torture porn was a big step back in this area. Like I discussed on our, why we love horror. When I talked about the second hostile movie and how that one is revolves so much more around women, but at the same time to me, 
it was exploiting the women um, and not really celebrating the women because, you know, the scene that I described about the woman having the other woman's blood drop, dro- dripping on her body, um, that, that can, that can bring up a lot of things really, because that blood could also be symbolism for menstruation. Of course, you see that a lot with women in horror movies. Um, sexuality is the big thing, which I want to talk about a little bit here, which I know we've already kind of discussed. Um, and we'll discuss it more in our, um, slasher films episode that we have recorded, but that one will be airing in a couple days. Um, but sexuality is the big thing. Like it's really interesting because it's like you, on one hand you keep seeing all these naked women and you know, it's like kind of, I think to entice the, the teenage boy, get them into the theater and have them see this half naked woman, uh, have her be in the shower, have her be having sex and being very sexual, or but then she gets punished. Yes, or, or a slumber like, party. Suddenly or something all the girls like are topless at the slumber yes. party. Yes. I'm looking at you, um, slumber party massacre. I know <laughs> so, you know, they. It, it's on one hand, it's like we want to celebrate the body, but then we're going to kill you for celebrating your body. Um, and you'll see that happen a lot more in, in slasher films, I think, than other ones usually, but, and big time in torture porn, although torture porn, I don't think it's mainly punishing for sexuality. I think it's mainly punishing women for being women. I, I honestly think of it that way. It's kind of that male rage, um, and feeling like men are so oppressed, which they aren't, but men feeling that way (laughs) and then wanting to, well, I mean, I should preface that by saying white straight men are have no repression in their lives (laughs) um but i think some do think that they think that they do they think with the women's liberation movement with um anything like that that they feel that they're getting pressed down or any woman being free with her sexuality or free with who she is so this is kind of a revenge on that a beat down on that so that's why it's so interesting in slasher films as opposed to torture porn necessarily is that you have a woman that ends up defeating that and coming out on top and defeating the man um, I mean, there are instances where a woman is a killer, such as in like the movie Urban Legend. Um, and that was another one where a woman was punishing another woman, but it didn't have anything to do with sexuality. She was avenging the death of her, you know, boyfriend. So it's so, you know, it can happen, but a lot, but most often it is a man and the woman is trying to defeat the man. And of course, a lot of the weapons used are very phallic. You know, swords, guns, chainsaws. Typically knives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Typically something that is very phallic. So it's that imagery, that phallic imagery, murdering a woman, stabbing a woman. I mean, it's not always women. Men die, of course, too. But I'm just talking about the the female side of it. Um, but yeah, so that's 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 a very, very interesting part of it. Um, do you have anything you want to add on the, the phallic weapons? Just because I think that's an interesting thing. I don't... I mean, certainly when I was in film school, the phallic weapons always came up. Like, and it, this is really obvious in films like Slumber Party Massacre, where it's a gigantic drill. And sorry, spoilers if you have not seen this slasher film. It's a slashic. Uh, you know, one of our final girls at the end literally cuts <laughs> this phallic weapon in half. <laughs> So I think that, yeah, we definitely have some, like, phallic weaponry. But 
I also was thinking when it comes to women in horror, I mentioned why we love horror. Uh, one of the movies that really scared the crap out of me. And I think that really works as a feminist horror film, even though it's directed by a man uh, and by not a very good man at that uh, Roman Polanski is Rosemary's baby. And I think this is what I, I think actually demonic possession films really get at a lot of, they they really reach me in many ways as a woman viewer because I see, first of all, once again, women are frequently the victims in demonic possession movies. You think of like The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which is based on a real case, The Exorcist. Um, I actually, one of my favorite demonic possession films, if you're going for something that has a slightly different take on the genre, is a movie called Ava's Possessions, in which the idea of possessions is real and common throughout the culture. And so Ava recovering from her own demonic possession is a part of a support group for others recovering from demonic possession and kind of learning like, so how did you get possessed? (laughs) And how do we keep the demons out of our bodies? (laughs) It's actually, it's a, I think it's a fairly clever and still at times very scary uh, horror film but there's a character in that movie who's a young woman who wants her demon back because she finally feels invincible with this demonic power. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know what? We don't really talk about, like, in the terror of exorcism films, we don't really talk about how some of these women, like, get a chance to feel empowered. <laughs> or, like, suddenly have the strength to throw a big man across the room or up the walls not the ceiling um but thinking about things like rosemary's baby uh i have so many male horror film like fan friends that all say they hate rosemary's baby uh about the movie rosemary's baby i have so many male horror film fan friends try saying that five times fast <laughs> who hate that movie and they think it is so boring and they're like, it's not scary at all. Nothing happens. There's barely any blood in it. It's just so dumb. I watch that movie and I'm like, this, this is not scary to men because men don't know what it's like to be afraid or deal with like fear while you're pregnant or the fears that come along with pregnancy or the fear of being raped, mm-hmm. being drugged and raped, being drugged, raped, having to carry the rapist baby, the the anxiety and the fear that comes along with knowing something is wrong with your body and having doctors and your neighbors and your own husband tell you, you're, you're hallucinating, you're making this up. I have women watch that movie and they're like, that's messed up. That is terrifying. And I think that's, even though, again, it's written by a man, it was directed by Roman Polanski, who is a terrible person. (laughs) Sorry, everyone. Sorry, not sorry. I think that this is, again, this is one of the few genres that I can think of where some of those fears that women experience can be really aptly expressed and yeah. that's what makes it appealing to me as a as a woman viewer. 
And I'm like, yes, look, this is everything I've been trying to tell you about. Incidentally, I first saw that film while I was in college and my college roommate just found out that she was pregnant uh, by a man that she had been very casually seeing for a few months. So it was very unplanned and subsequently was going through a terrible pregnancy. So it was like all of my fears and everything I was watching my friend go through right up there on screen. And I'm trying to think of a drama movie that does the same thing. <laughs> and I'm coming up short. No, it's very true. And and lots of different fears. Um, you know, when you were talking, I actually, the movie that popped into my head was um, The Shining. And even though um, Stanley Kubrick uh, treated her horribly, you you have, you know, a woman who has a husband who has been an alcoholic, has already been violent with their child before. So we've already seen that. And then you're going up to this place where it's just going to be you stuck with your husband and a little boy out in the middle of nowhere in a place you've never been before in a huge place that has a, a history that you learn about that's just horrendous and this husband that is basically from the very beginning is on edge and i'm talking about just the movie version not the not the book so you're already dealing with that and then all of a sudden your husband starts you know being really weird and and a little bit more violent and not even with being violent physically but violent in his words and very aggressive and really torturing you in in a lot of ways and talking down to you and treating you like crap and that whole scene when um wendy played by shelly duvall who i think doesn't get enough credit for the fact that she went through hell making this movie and she turns in a great performance i know jack nicholson has said you know she gives probably the best female performance one of the best female performances i've ever seen and jack nicholson's like she deserves more credit and we should have gotten more credit than stanley kubrick or at least on the same level for what happened with that movie and that whole scene where she discovers you know what jack has been writing you know and that it's just the same sentence over and over again it's just page and page and page and page and page and just just her facial expressions in that scene of just discovering my husband is gone. My husband isn't there. And, yes, then she has to deal with trying to fight him off. And he's got an axe and she's got the bat. And she's got to deal with that. She's got to deal with trying to rescue her son. But you also have that moment. I think that moment is even more terrifying in some ways because she's all alone. She hasn't seen him yet. And she's just discovering how far down that rabbit hole he has gone and she doesn't even know yet really the extent to what is going on in this hotel but just that scene of just discovering that and being and any woman who has ever been in a relationship that has had any violence involved in it or any drinking involved in it or anything like that where that trust has been broken before and then the trust is being broken again, but there's that fear behind it. And that's something that I'm not saying that men can't ever feel that fear or that men are never abused or anything, but, but this is a fear that I think a lot of women have. Um, You have that fear, you know, that your husband who's supposed to be a great guy is going to kill you 
going to murder you, um, you know, because you see it happen all the time that, you know, a man who was supposed to be such happen. a great husband. Yeah, that's what I mean. As you see, you had happen all the time is a man who was supposedly a great husband, just quote unquote snaps and kills his family. So that fear is already there. So it gets heightened, of course, in horror films. But I mean, you even have like the movie The Stepfather, where he basically was that <laughs> prototype of that man <laughs> who wanted that perfect family, that perfect white family, and then he was going to kill to get it kind of thing. And so it does play on those fears. And I want to talk a little bit, though, about um, rape. So a little bit trigger warning here. I mean, I think when we're talking about horror, I kind of think you're kind of should realize we're going to be talking about a lot of sensitive subjects anyway. But rape in It's going to be violence. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to briefly touch on this, and then, then we'll switch over to racism and horror. But uh, rape and horror, um, you know, th- that goes into sexuality as well. But what are your thoughts on how that has been portrayed in horror films, Rebecca? Ooh, I think... I just want to talk about it. <laughs> oh, boy. And this is a hard one. Like, I tend to avoid movies that have rape in them. I actually... Um, I had a hard time making it through the evil dead the first time that I saw the the movie. And again, I think this is something where the horror genre gets at the terror that comes along with sexual assault more so than I think many other genres do. Like I can think of a lot of dramatic films in which rape is a key plot point and it is treated obviously with a lot of trauma and a lot of sadness that comes with it. And I don't know that they always capture the fear that comes with the idea of being sexually assaulted. And in the evil dead, I know a lot of guys that kind of laugh at that scene or a lot of people, I won't say all only men, but I'm like, I can't, when I rewatch that movie, I can't see that scene again, like the tree rape. And I know a lot of people kind of laugh at it. I'm like, Oh, this is silly. It's a tree. And I'm like, Mm. it's part of what makes it even more I'm like she's still raped (laughs) that still happens Um, again Rosemary's baby she's drugged and raped incidentally sold to the devil by her husband for the advancement of his career I think that uh, I also recently learned I had not thought of seeing and I know Aaron you don't like this film (laughs) and will not see it again thinking of The Exorcist as an allegory for Reagan being sexually molested by one of her mother's friends. And I had not thought of the film this way until I saw this analysis. It was a a YouTube blogger that I saw post like, is the exorcism, is the exorcist actually about Reagan being, is the demonic possession actually Reagan like reacting to the trauma of being sexually molested by one of her mother's friends. And is it again, kind of in part to like the reaction of the rise of single mothers and this idea that if you're a single mom, you're not really a good mom and therefore you're going to be leaving your child alone to possibly be attacked and abused by people and listening to their arguments for it. It makes a lot of sense and I can definitely see why, that rings true watching the movie. Like there's, there's one dude in particular who like leaves the party early after he's kind of like 
disappeared upstairs where Reagan is for a little while. And there's, there's some clues, not to mention there's a lot of like, they also delved into some of the psychology, things like that. I'm like, Ooh, yeah. uh, (laughs) This could actually make a lot of sense. (laughs) Creepy. Uh, But it does show up. It's, it, frequently in horror films the idea of sexual assault rape it's always very hard for me to watch and i think i think that there are a lot of films that use it as the in horror films anyway as part of the inciting incident that usually either turns a woman evil um i think the film shutter it was a I think it's a South Korean Taiwanese horror film. I should probably check. In which the spoiler alerts for that film, if I'm thinking of the correct film, <laughs> uh, the ghost has become a ghost because she was gang raped. And basically, the person that she's haunting witnessed this and did nothing to stop it. And I think that there's. Occasionally, at least in horror films, there's an opportunity for the revenge tale as a result of this sexual assault, which is in some ways like cathartic, I think, for women watching it. But it's also really difficult to see that violence show up and just know that it can be portrayed very graphically. It's not usually implied. It's pretty out there. Yeah, I've I've never heard of that one. I was trying to look it up here to see, and the only thing that came up was Shudder was something else. Um, so I don't know. Um, yeah, but and th- yeah, because I think um, what can come up a lot is you can have the female revenge film after that happens. Um, you can have also like in Last House on the Left, where you have the parents getting revenge. Um, the people that brutally attacked their kids. So you have that as well. Um, And I don't know if you've ever seen Last House on the Left, Rebecca, but it's a very, very hard movie to watch. It's been a long time. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very painful movie to watch. Um, You also have, and I don't know if people would consider this a horror movie, but you have movies like Hard Candy, um, Mm. which Hard Candy is, um, a movie if you haven't seen it about uh, Ellen Page is in it and um, why am I forgetting you know oh my god how am I forgetting him he's become a big time uh, you know we're going to be talking about him soon <laughs> I can't, I'm sorry guys um, I'm going to look it up really quickly here but um, Patrick Wilson and so you have that she has been Ellen Page has been communicating with Patrick Wilson's character online in a forum and he very much knows that she is underage and he says he shoots models and stuff and they meet up and it's a very very freaky scene to watch them meet up in this cafe and you're watching this young girl with this grown man and you're scared for her and they go back to his place and then it's very quickly turned into you know where she's basically like torturing him so it's turned on him and she kind of seeks out people um and it's almost in a way some people have compared have compared it to um little red riding hood kind of thing except for she's getting back at the wolf 
So it's it's an interesting story. And to me, I think it's kind of horror related um, because it's a very scary movie. You also are like, wait, should we feel sorry for the Patrick Wilson guy or not? Did he really do anything or not? Because a while, because for a little bit there, you're wondering if maybe he didn't actually do anything. So that's a really, really interesting one to look at. Um, I know there have been other ones as well where a woman does get raped and even killed and she'll come back from the dead and seek revenge against the people who have harmed her. Um, there's the movie that I, I mentioned it in why we love horror, the movie may, which she is never um, sexually assaulted in the movie, but there is a lot of stuff in there where you could think maybe something happened to her as a kid. Um, but she's a, she's an outcast and she thinks she's found people to connect to because they're weird too, but they're not her level of weird. And so she exacts her revenge against those people. Spoiler alert. It's a great, great movie. And that movie is very much an examination of a woman, a female um, character, several different female characters actually in that one. Um, so that that's a good one. And then I think probably, and we've mentioned it already on a couple of episodes, but I think one that really, really speaks to this and speaks to women taking power and seeking revenge on men using their um, power against us is the movie Teeth, because that really does deal with literally teeth. exacting <laughs> revenge upon men and literally, you know, biting their dicks off with you know with your vagina genitalia so it's so yeah so i think that one is probably the best movie when it deal comes to that because honestly that in the end i think of her as like a superhero <laughs> she's got her I own superhero she, power yeah she, to, comes, for, she becomes a vigilante by the end oh, yeah, she's like of all course, right yeah, she i'm gonna it. yeah she's afraid of it at first she's afraid of her power um, and then she embraces it by the end, which is really, really cool and awesome to see. So I, I just think that's that's a, that's a really good one. And of course, Carrie is a revenge thing too. It's not, I mean, her sexuality is used against her only in by only in the fact that you know her period is really used against her when she gets her period. Her mom uses her sexuality against her, of course. And then, of course, the boy asking her out all as a prank. So, yeah, so that, that's another one. And I think in um, one of the Carrie sequels, oh, I can't remember which one it was, but where she um, does fall in love with a guy who falls in love with her, too. I can't remember the exact thing. And, like, one of the characters in there was actually in the original Carrie. Um, and then probably, and then another one is I spit on your grave, um, which, Oh yeah. That's a yeah. classic, like women's yeah. revenge horror. Yeah. That's, that's another one that's big on there. And there are a bunch that are like that too. So yeah. And I saw that you just sent, um, shut oh, see, I was yeah. spelling it a different way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, yeah. this is not spelled like the streaming service that we frequently <laughs> talk about. I found the film, the Shutter film that I was talking about earlier. It is a 2004 Thai film okay. called Shutter, and I do recommend watching it. It is creepy, uh, and it definitely takes a lot of twists and turns. Um, but I, I think that it's actually a really interesting film, and I saw it go. 2008 or so and I still haven't forgotten about it so I think that's an indication of a film with some staying power yeah 
Yeah, definitely. And you also have, um, and I don't know why this one made me think, but I think because when I was reading the description, it said some mysterious shadow in the photos. Um, the movie, the Kevin Bacon movie, Stir of Echoes, which I think is actually re a really underrated uh, movie in the paranormal genre. And of course, in that one, he has um, basically the ghost of a girl that was murdered and buried behind his wall, um, trying to seek help from him. And and all the while you're thinking the ghost is the bad person, the bad character, but she's not. It's the human, the people that are still alive. So I always, so I think that's an interesting trope too that you'll see sometimes where spirits are trying to seek revenge, or at least try not necessarily revenge, but they're trying to get peace and they're trying to get justice. So I also want to point that out. Um, and I think that can also deal with women losing their power and wanting to have somebody be punished for that because that doesn't happen a lot. So. Um, well, yeah. Well, let's move on to racism and horror, because I think this is one area that while it may be improving, it's got a ways to go. Um, and one thing I do want to say here is both Rebecca and I are white women. So some of this we can't really speak to from personal experience. So I realize that our lens on this might be a little bit different, but I do want to talk about it at least a little bit. Um, and some of the harmful tropes, some of the, the fact that you don't have a lot of representation in mm. horror movies necessarily. Um, and a lot of times it's bad representation or the person is killed instantly, which is uh, the biggest trope. Is there the first to die? Is any black person who shows up is the first to die? Um, so what are some of your thoughts on representation um, of, of people of color and especially with, with black people in um, horror films. Well, I recently watched the documentary horror noir, which first of all, introduced me to several movies that I now kind of want to see because I hadn't, especially because they were typically black exploitation films of the seventies. They were things like Blackula or like there was a couple of other films in that ilk that were brought up in the documentary that I was like, I had never even heard of those. And again, it's because they were created for specifically to be directed towards the black community. And as a white woman from very white Nebraska, <laughs> these films were never, I, they were never available to us. And I think that it is something that is improving uh, I don't think that I would have thought of a movie like Get Out or Us being as popular or as mainstream as they were when they came out. I think if they had come out 20 years ago, you A, wouldn't have seen that, and B, I don't know that, that it would have had a big release. Uh, so I'm very glad that those films exist now. And I think that they're a great way, again, as we talk about horror being a great genre to represent fears and anxieties and talk about some of these things that are really scary. I, uh, I would like to see more black horror films because I think that especially as a white woman, I think that there's a lot of power in film to be able to help empathize with a group that you may not be a part of. That's personally how I see it. Um, and I think that the documentary also brought up a lot of really 
great points about things that I had kind of learned about in film school and had frankly kind of dismissed. I would say, I will admit like growing up in a white community, being a white woman, they were things that I hadn't really considered as problematic as they were for a black audience. Things like watching the film, The Serpent in the Rainbow about that is set in Haiti. I think it was filmed in the late eighties, early nineties. I could Google that, but it deals with the idea of voodoo. And that was certainly something that immediately comes to mind as a stereotype for black people in horror films that, oh yeah, black people in magic, it's voodoo. It's raising people from the dead and it's skulls and blood and things, which actually is not the religion of voodoo at all. Uh, if anyone is interested in learning about the actual religion of voodoo in Africa, in Benin, there's a great documentary that's available on Amazon Prime right now, directed by, directed and hosted by, okay, I'm going to screw up his name, Jimon Honsu, the actor. Did I come anywhere close? To yeah, me? I think that I think that is actually really close. Yeah, um, and it's called In Search of Voodoo, and he grew up in Voodoo, in Benin, and so he actually goes back to his home country to talk to practitioners and members of the Voodoo Church about what the religion's actually about. It's a big eye opener for me because, again, the only exposure that I had to this as a white person was through primarily through movies and through horror films. And I definitely grew up seeing that. Yeah. I saw people of color in horror films as well as many other films. They were the sidekick or they were the first victim. And I think now I have a better understanding of how much damage that does being a white audience member, especially growing up in the nineties. I didn't think as much about it. I was like, Oh yeah, of course. Like this is the way that movies go. And I'm glad that I'm starting to see things changing, but I do think that there's still a long way to go. We need some more Jordan Peele's and we need some more black women directing horror films of their own too. Which, which there are. <laughs> um, they don't get talked about enough, but um, you've got the new Candyman movie that's coming out, which is directed by Nia DaCosta. And sadly, everyone just associates Jordan Peele with it, but it's very important to stress that it is directed by a black woman. Um, and Candyman is a very interesting example of this because oh, yeah. um, Candyman, you know, when you look at it, I was just rewatching it the other day because I wanted, because originally the new Candyman was supposed to come out this year, but because of COVID, it's been pushed to next year. Um, but I wanted to watch it just in preparation for that movie because I'm really excited for that one. And you have this white woman going to Cabrini Green, which is a very, 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 very well known uh, project in Chicago. And she's going there to research the legend of Candyman, of course. And you see her white privilege and how she doesn't care about the fact that she's really disturbing the lives of the of the people living there. And she's basically looking at everybody living there um, kind of like um, – kind of like – 
test subjects, I guess, or kind of like they're the way to help her with her paper and help her with her study and help her learn about Candyman. She doesn't care about who she hurts in the process. Um, she's actually a really selfish character. And that's what's so interesting about that movie. And I think some, I think when I was young and I saw it, I may have missed that. Um, but when you really watch it, it's really a lot about, you know, white women, we tend to use our whiteness to get away with a lot of stuff. And we don't always realize it. I mean, we benefit a lot from our whiteness. Um, that's why you will see that, you know, <laughs> Over 50% of women, white women, like 54% or something, voted for Trump. I mean, vote against their own interests because they still want to have that white um, power there. They still want to feed off of that, that um, the white um, supremacist, supremacy, excuse me, in this country. And I think Candyman, you kind of see that a little bit where you have this white woman just going and disrupting these lives. And of course she has her black female friend sidekick um, who ends up dying a lot because of her own (laughs) arrogance. (laughs) Really? I mean, that's really a lot of why she dies. Um, And of course you have the main character of Candyman who, um, you know, his whole backstory was he was in love with a white woman. And of course that was, a big, big no-no. And so you, so you have a lot of, right. mm -hmm, Yes. So you have a lot of dealing with racism in that movie and then also showing it. And I know that um, it's also got mixed reviews because of course you have, um, you know, the, the black friend dying and you have the white woman still being held up as, you know, the, the, the pinnacle she kind of there. thinks of herself as but a savior. Too. She does. She definitely yeah. gets the yeah. white savior complex. Definitely. You definitely got a lot of messages about that as a white person in from movies and yes. to this day in the Oscars, especially about. Oh yeah, you can definitely. be the good white person who fixes racism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's still, it's still prevalent. I mean, it's still like green book. I mean, green book, just one best picture. And that is very much um, a movie where it should have been focused on a, on the black character and it was focused on the white man. So, and it was very much the white man learning, you know, overcoming his own racism and becoming the hero of the day. And, you know, we don't need any more stories like that. We just don't. And because, you know, a lot of times it's BS too, but we just, we don't need those stories. We don't need to see a racist cop, you know, becoming a better person and overcoming his racism. We don't, we don't need the focus to be on racists like that. We just, I mean, that just shouldn't be on that anymore. And while I do think it's getting better, you still have, um, you still have certain tropes still coming up, like the trope of the mythical Negro is what it's called. Um, and it's basically like in The Shining. You have it in The Shining with Dick Halloran, who ends up getting killed very viciously and really should not have been murdered. Um, I believe in the book no, he isn't murdered. He is yeah, not, he's not yeah, murdered that's what book. I thought. Yeah, but but he's still he fulfills that 
role. He's the one who is, you know, dispatching, you know, all-knowing character. He's the, he's the one that will sacrifice himself for the white man, um, which is That's literally the what... Trope, the sacrificial Negro. Yes, yes. And it goes into this. And even now you've got... Um, I was just listening to this really good podcast called Pod Mortem, where, where they discuss horror films in length and in depth. And they were discussing um, Annabelle, the first Annabelle movie, which is one of the ones that's an offshoot of um, the the, Conjuring Conjuring universe. And it follows the doll. And it really is not the actual story of the doll, even though I think the Warrens are complete and total charlatans. But anyway, uh, that's for another podcast. (laughs) They are. (laughs) They are. But anyway, but in this story, you have Alfre Woodard, who's one of the most amazing actresses in the world, relegated to this same trope, this same trope um, in that movie. And she literally sacrifices herself for the white woman, you know, so you still have this trope happening. This movie wasn't just made, you know, 20, 30 years ago. This is a pretty recent movie. So this trope still lives on. Um, So even though it's getting a little bit better, I mean, you, you know, I think Jordan Peele, um, is doing a lot for horror. I do. Um, I think he's helping other voices get heard. Um, you have certain shows coming along, like you have Lovecraft, um, which came along, which basically took HP Lovecraft was a huge, huge racist. So basically taking that and owning that and turning it around and having black people be the heroes is, is a big thing. That's a big deal. Having a movie like get out, be nominated for best picture is not only a big deal because it's a horror movie, but it's a big deal mm-hmm. because of the subject matter. But like in our get out episode, when Carla and I discussed this and we discussed, you know, what would have happened if say Jordan Peele had tried to release us first, because us has a predominantly black cast. It focuses on a black family. And if you had tried to release that, and also, you know, a lot of dark-skinned black people, which you don't see that as much. It's usually, you know, light-skinned. It's true, very light-skinned. Um, yeah, and whereas with um, Get Out, it's a primarily white cast. So we discussed that on there is if he had tried to release us first, would it have had this – would he have been able to release us first if he hadn't released Get Out mm. first? I mean, it's an interesting question to try to ponder because, you know, once he released Get Out, he was able to release us because of the acclaim for Get Out. But it is interesting to think about if he had tried to release us since it is, you know, about a black family um, in a horror movie. So, yeah. So I I, I think there are some things that are getting better. Um but there are still tropes that need to literally die um, and yes. not be used as much. And we need to have more of, you know, more of having the white people be the first people to go. Um, but yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. sorry. I have to say, when I, when I saw the movie Annabelle, I really hated the fact that Alfred Woodard died. I, first of all, I don't particularly enjoy The Conjuring universe um (laughs) i think that i think it's being called a cinematic universe now i saw the first conjuring film and i kind of went it's okay it's a typical jump scare movie like it's fine and i saw annabelle and i was like are you kidding me with this i'm out (laughs) 
I'm done. And I think the point where Alfred Woodard died was the point where I just kind of threw up my hands and went, I'm done. Nope. I'm out. <laughs> and I have to say to any of the writers that if you write horror and you're thinking about putting some of these tropes in your, in your film, I want you to think about this because I think that perhaps finally audiences are starting to catch on that this is not good writing anymore. Like you could have gotten away with that five years ago, six years ago. I think we're starting to become a bit more savvy and I hope anyway that we're starting to pay a bit more attention to these things. So get better. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Very true. Yeah. People do. We do need to get better and we need to get better in our consumption of it too. You know, that's, that's the other thing I will say. I love the Conjuring movies. I think the first one is one of the best horror movies that has come out in the past decade. Um, We are definitely going to discuss that when we do paranormal, our paranormal episode. Um, I didn't like the first Annabelle. I actually think the sequels are actually pretty decent. And I think the last one that came out was pretty good. Actually, I will say that. Um, But yeah, and I'm excited about any other of the Conjuring, even though I do not like the Warrens. I don't like what they did. I don't like how they took advantage of people. Um, You know, I just, to me, because I believe in that stuff, when there there are so many charlatans out there, so it really ticks me off. So yeah, and and we're actually going to cover the conjuring universe next year during Halloween, because we're going to do a bunch of slasher ones. And then we're going to do a bunch of paranormal ones out of series. Like we're going to do poltergeist and um, we're going to do the conjuring universe. And we're going to talk about um, the Amityville, which I have my own issues with. And so it'll be interesting. So I just want to put that out there. I know it's a year away, but I'm still putting it out there. Um, and another very racist thing that you will also see um, used a lot is the medicine man. Um, you you have, um, you know, th- that's another stereotype or you have yeah. the shaman. Um, another thing you will see, and speaking of poltergeist, is a lot of things being built on top of Indian burial grounds and that kind oh, of use yes. of thing. Yeah. So that's, that's another trope too. So it's, yeah. So it's rampant in a lot, well, of, a lot of different ways. Again, it's, it's something that we don't, um, I feel like we're finally starting to get some better representation within this genre. Um, I've mentioned in our zombie podcast, I saw my very first uh, native directed native written zombie outbreak movie and I think that and the we could talk about like I, I think that there are a few actors in it who are really good and a few who are not uh, it's a movie called Blood Quantum uh, it's a Canadian film and it's set in Quebec and the term blood quantum, first of all, has a lot of race implications uh, for those who might be listening from outside the United States or North America. Your blood quantum, uh, the literally the percentage of your heritage that is native or indigenous was very important and legally determined uh, at points like what rights you had as a citizen uh, in both, I believe, in Canada as well as in the United States for the First Nations uh, people of Canada. 
and it also like that term also plays a role then in like how people perceive you as a native as an indigenous person so i thought that that idea and that they use that title and then the plot of the film is that the first nations people the micmac tribe are the people who are immune to the virus or the whatever is causing the zombie outbreak and so they are in sort of a reverse of the situation where they were exposed to great plagues that the white settlers brought over they are now immune and the white settlers are once again looking to the native people for help and i was like this is a perfect plot for a zombie movie why haven't we had this before <laughs> why had nobody thought of this before also why do i not see any native horror films where are they hiding I want to see these now. <laughs> so if you have recommendations, listeners, for <laughs> horror films from, from the Native communities or the Indigenous peoples, I'd love to see them. <laughs> but you do that. That's also where frequently uh, a lot of, uh, not just Black people, but uh, other people of color are frequently portrayed as kind of magical like the the native like the the curse of of the indian burial ground which if if you know me you know i will tell you the story <laughs> the uh poltergeist film and the idea of the indian burial ground the cemetery that they buried on top of that was just they moved the headstones and didn't move the bodies is based on the actual story and the origin of cheeseman park here in Denver, in which that did literally happen. Uh, Cheeseman Park was initially an Indian burial ground, and then it was a cemetery for the city for many years. And then when the city decided to get rid of the cemetery, they simply moved the headstones and left about 2,000 bodies left behind, upon which houses are built. Mm -hmm. So that is a real thing. Uh, but yes, the the... Yeah. Yeah. It comes up a lot. <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah. And we'll be talking about, um, I'll be talking about my own personal experiences. I grew up um, for the first, when I was really young, living in the Congress Park in Cheeseman Park area in Colorado. And so I have a lot of my own paranormal experiences growing up there um, that we'll definitely share on our special paranormal episode. We're going to do our own personal experiences. So that should be a fun little one. Um, yeah. We're, gonna try and creep everybody out creep each other out maybe so that'll be more like a scary episode maybe um but yeah yeah there's i mean there's just so many tropes that need to die like i said and so much change that still needs to happen and representation across the board and people need to be able to tell their own stories too that's the other thing so yeah that's why we need um a, a big variety of, you know, we, have, we need more women. We need more women of color. We need more people of color. We need more, you know, behind the scenes as well. So that's the other thing that, that, that needs to happen too. So we need more of that. Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about LGBTQ plus representation in horror and then ableism in horror. So we'll be back in just a minute. And we're back. Um, so now let's move on to LGBTQ plus representation in horror, because I think this is another area that 
needs a lot of improvement, frankly, still. I mean, I think it's a little oh, bit yes. better, but it needs a lot of improvement. Um, because a lot of times, anyone that was queer-coded, um, especially if people were trying to represent them as trans, were seen as the villain, the bad person. I mean, you have um, Norman Bates, um, of course, is a big example that's used with that, um, is, is, is one. And then also, of course, um, you have from... Silence of the Lambs, which I have to say, I'm just going to say this really quickly. I'm one oh, of the no. few people, well, yeah, but I'm I'm one of the few people in the world that does not like the movie Silence of the Lambs. Um, I hate that movie. I absolutely despise that movie. Um, but yeah, yeah, I despise it. I think it's, I uh, the reason I don't like that movie, and this was the reason I had a hard time finishing the television show Hannibal, is I hate the way, in my opinion... It glamorizes the character of Hannibal Lecter. And I know people may disagree with me, but I frankly saw a lot of people love that character back then. So I know that's that's a little aside there, but I know I'm one of the only people in the world that truly despises that movie. I hate that movie. But and it's not for the reason that I think that I can understand people hating it, which is the character of Buffalo Bill, which in the book and in the movie, he isn't outright described as trans, but that's the way a lot of people view that character. And you have this character who is a serial killer who is dissecting women, taking skin from the woman to make a quote unquote woman's suit. So that is a very harmful depiction, really. Um, you also have seen it in movies like Dress to Kill, um, where it, it is basically a person dressing as a woman, killing people, and ends up having a male being, man, being a man. You have the movie Cruising, which may not be necessarily a horror movie, but that is horrific because it is um, gay men being murdered. And that's very much a movie that is hated, hated in the gay community. Uh, and we mentioned that in our LGBTQ plus representation in film um, episode earlier this year. So, yes, there's a lot of stuff in this area. Um, I do think there might be some places where it's getting better. And I, and I meant to mention this movie when we were talking about women and I totally, totally spaced mentioning it. So I'm going to look at, up uh, one of the into the dark, um, series that's on Hulu called, uh, new year, new you, which is basically all women. I mean, it's an all female horror movie basically. And a couple of the characters in there are, um, gay and I believe they're married, but I could be wrong about that so there are some that, that that are happening there is there is another one um in the into the dark series that came out around the new year of this year um called i think it's called dark kiss i'm gonna have to look it up here but i'm gonna turn it over to you rebecca while i look that up oh uh, i think i think the one you're thinking of is midnight kiss maybe from the into the dark yes, series yes midnight kiss is the one i'm thinking yes. of. yeah and that's that's a, that's a gay horror film so but yeah. absolutely so I think that this is, so I recently watched the, I've been watching a lot of documentaries apparently lately. I recently saw the Netflix documentary Disclosure, um, interviewing trans people in the trans community about trans representation in film. And they brought up a lot of horror films 
uh, in particular because, and I actually looked this up before we started talking, uh, started recording this episode. So homosexuality was listed as a disease in the DSM until 1987. So I have to kind of remember when I'm watching some of these films that they were people like society, the medical profession literally were viewing the gay community, the LGBTQ uh, plus community as mentally ill for centuries, uh, really up until my lifetime. And I say this as a, as cis, a straight woman. Uh, and so again, I would love to hear some thoughts from the from the rest of the community about some of these things. It was it was something that I did not realize was such a problem and that I did not realize how many of these messages I had absorbed until thinking about this as an adult and watching things like Disclosure makes me realize like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're frequently in the horror film genre. It's the psycho... Like, uh, clearly he's psychotic. He's dressed as a woman. Like, clearly she's insane. She's transsexual. Like, that's frequently showed up. I just saw the film Sleepaway Camp for the first time. And spoilers ahead for that film. If you have not seen it, I recommend seeing it, um, both for good and for bad reasons. But I wanted to talk about my reaction to this film. So if you haven't seen it, skip ahead a few minutes. <laughs> uh, if you have seen it, and certainly if you're a member of the trans community, I would really welcome your thoughts on this because the big twist, the big reveal in the movie, Aaron, you've seen this, correct? So the big twist at the end of the movie is that the killer is Angela, a young teenage girl. Angela is still biologically male. Uh, or the big reveal is you see her penis at the end of the film. And the reason that she's being raised female is because there was a boating accident when she was a child in which she grew up with a sister and her father, who you get the indication from a dream sequence later that her father was gay or whoever was, yeah. Um, but her aunt takes her in and tells her basically, and I'm using the female pronoun because that's what she's gone by throughout the film, basically says that you learn that actually it was the sister who died and the brother survived. And basically the aunt takes her in and says, I've always wanted a little girl and I already have a little boy, so I can't possibly have another little boy. So raises him as his sister and of course you have once again this trope in the movie of you have a trans character who is clearly mentally unhinged and committing murder but I also watched this as thinking here is a person who's being forced to live as a gender identity that she may or may not identify with. We don't know because she barely speaks in the movie. She is frequently 
attacked in the film. She's clearly very afraid a lot of the time. Her first encounter going to the sleepaway camp is literally a pedophile who tries to attack her in the kitchen. And watching the movie for the first time, I was like, oh, this guy is gross. I hope he is the first one to die. And sure enough, first one to die. I was very happy about that. But you, the last shot of the movie was so striking to me because she's just screaming in rage and anger, totally naked. And I thought, this, to me, like, think of how much rage and pain she's been feeling her entire life, whether or not she actually identifies as as female or not, having to hide herself, being constantly afraid of somebody realizing that she still has a, that she has a penis, like how, like that, like rage scream at the end to me, I, I almost started crying actually watching it. Cause I was like, I think of my friends in the trans community and people that I've talked to about transitioning and several of them have mentioned the anger that they felt both at themselves and at the world prior to accepting who they were and being able to actually transition and live as their authentic selves. And I thought there's a lot of problems with this, with this trope and the way that it shows up in this movie and the like horror reveal that Angela was not actually a woman, but there's so much honesty. I think in watching it of seeing that anger and that rage (laughs) come out. So I understand that there's a lot of problems with the film, but there's also some of it that I found very, and again, I am a cis white straight woman. So take this with as much salt as you need (laughs) listeners. There was something that I found very like heartbreaking about the movie. Well, and this is a character you don't even know of this character would identify as female. Oh, that's that's the exactly. thing is you don't even like, know. I mean, she doesn't you don't get know a choice because because that's the thing. And that's and like I've read people say this really isn't a trans character because there isn't that identity there. This is what's forced on 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 the character on Angela on Peter, which Peter was the was the male. Oh, yes. Peter was the brother. Thing. Yes, yeah. who who survived and Angela actually died in the beginning of the movie when you see this boat accident. Um, Yeah. So, or yeah. So they, so the thing with that movie is really what that movie is about is, is Angela or Peter. Peter has all this trauma that has never been dealt with and, you know, just built up and built up and built up and built up and then having to pretend that, he's Angela and then not being able to decide that is a totally horrific thing. And, and you can see why someone might go off the edge there with having to deal with that. I'm not at all excusing murder, but I'm just saying that you can kind of, kind of see that. So it's an interesting thing. And then of course, I mean, really the last, one of the last lines of the movie is someone saying, 
she's a boy or something along those lines yes. instead of so reacting the to the fact like, oh my god she's instead of boy. reacting to the fact that they just saw one of their friends dead bodies that's the first thing they're reacting to so yeah that's it's a very interesting example and of course that movie is a cult classic because of that twist if it didn't have that twist in that i think that movie probably would have just gone away and people wouldn't necessarily know about it because you know it's it's a lesser slasher film um in a lot of ways it's um a lot of people compare it to friday the 13th and say it's basically a rip off of friday the 13th um it has a lot of similarities to friday the 13th when you look at it um but yeah yeah that definitely yeah that's 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 definitely one of them um yeah i i think um I think this is an area where horror needs to improve more. Like I mentioned, you have some that are, that are doing it. You'll have like seeing the movie midnight kiss, which was completely a gay horror movie. Um, I believe it was, it was made by a gay man. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I believe it was actually also made by a gay man revolves around gay men. Um, You know, it's a, it's, it's a slasher, but it's, you know, it's it's fine in that realm, I think, because to kill the gay characters, to kill some of the gay men, because that's the way the story goes. But it's still a gay horror movie and it's not a gay horror movie where people are being punished for being gay or where the person is a villain, of course, because they're gay. No, it's not. It's not about that. Or at least that's not the way it read to me. Um, and I could be wrong, but I know it. I know a lot of people were very happy to see a gay horror movie and a gay slasher flick. Um, so I know that 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 was one. And I know there are um, other strides to try and change that. And I know I'm and I'm sure there are some that I'm not even thinking of right now. Um, but I do think this is an area that really needs improvement. I mean, I, I just do. I just, I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but I just don't see as much representation in this area. It's, or at least really not representation. <laughs> it's true. And for like, I'm really trying to think of, and again, as these films were often morality tales, you frequently had a character who was coded as gay, who was either the villain. And as we mentioned, that goes all the way back to things like the Hayes Code and anybody who's immoral needs to be punished. Uh, but it also, like, I'm trying to think of any gay characters that are the hero of their story, even in recent films. Sadly, one of the first things that comes to mind is a movie I, I mentioned, I think, in our last episode. It's one I'd recently watched called All Cheerleaders Die. <laughs> In which I want everyone to watch this movie because I can't quite figure it out. And there's some of it that's so delightful and some of it that's so bizarre. But thinking about it, it's a largely queer-focused film. Uh, the majority of the female characters that are the, the lead characters in the film are lesbians, or at least bisexual. Um, some of which I think is played to kind of a like titillating effect, like... Like, oh yes, they're all they're going to make out with each other. But it's actually played very sincerely. Uh in the beginning of the film you have a character who's she is gay. 
her ex-girlfriend is very upset that she broke up with her and she's into practicing witchcraft. And when she finds out that she's dating a cheerleader and that she's gotten under the cheerleading squad and she and the cheerleader have like snuck off to make out in the woods. (laughs) At some point, all of the cheerleaders get into a car accident and the ex-girlfriend's been following them, and she pulls them out of the river, and she performs some occult necromancy to bring them back from the dead. <laughs> but they were, like, this does not change, like, through the movie. Like, the girl's sexuality is very much, and she is the lead of the film. These are, like, the three lead characters of the film are in a a lesbian love triangle. <laughs> and <laughs> I remember kind of thinking, like, I've never, I don't think I've ever seen a lesbian in a lead in the horror film, at least not one that was like openly acknowledged and not deeply coded in some way. Good for you, all cheerleaders die. <laughs> Need some more of this. Yeah, yeah. And I was just looking up, um, there is a list on um, Rotten Tomatoes of like 30 essential um LGBTQ horror films. And some of these are just queer coded, but I do want to mention really quickly, since we were talking about sleepaway camp, I always forget about the sequel. And I want to mention this because this is a, this description. It's okay. This is horrible. So I did, but I just want to read it because this is kind of where some of the problem went, but um, Angela Baker, a psychotic transsexual. That's how she's described in the sequel escapes from a mental hospital and surfaces at a summer camp as a counselor who lectures her teenage charges on proper moral behavior. Those teens who break her strict rules from the camp chatterbox or a sex obsessed girl to the boys who are peeping toms are murdered by the imposter in various gruesome ways. So even though the first one, they've said that it wasn't supposed to be a a trans character. They definitely embrace that with the sequels. So I just want to, I forgot all about the sequel there. So I just want to point that out just um, because, yeah. And I, and you know, there are um, actually the movie may is listed on here, um, which there is a little bit of that with the Anna Ferris character in that movie. Um, She's not the main character. The main character is played by Angela Bettis, who, who actually played Carrie in the television remake. Um, She plays May in this one. So she's in there. Um, So that one is one. They've got other ones on here. Um, Like, of course, one of the most well-known ones is uh, The Hunger. So that's, which is a vampire movie. Um, Yeah. So that's, that's one that's, that's known with with Susan Sarandon, Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie. Yeah. 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 I've also heard, actually, uh, that Interview with the Vampire can be read as a gay film. Very much so. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and and it really really is supposed to be these – I mean, the character of Lestat is definitely bisexual, I believe. And I believe that's actually what Anne Rice intended in the books. Um, and it's really hinted at in the movie. We're definitely going to talk about that in our upcoming vampire episode. We're going to talk a lot about queer coding in our vampire episode, because I think that's where you really, really see a lot of queer coding is in vampire movies. I think you see it more in vampire movies than many others. Um, like in the lost boys, it's also in the lost boys. You see queer coding there. Um, 
you know, lots of different. And then another one, this isn't a um, vampire flick, but the movie Jennifer's Body. There's some queer coding in that one as well. Oh, I love um, that movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's, so you'll see a lot of it. So there is a lot of them. It's just in my mind and see, it could be that I just haven't searched for it enough, but in my mind, there isn't enough that's like outright instead of just queer coded. Um, you know, there isn't enough that's just upfront and just basically just a, a queer horror movie and just an LGBTQ plus horror movie where it's not like, um, the gay character is the villain. Like you said, the, the gay character is the hero. Um, you know, you don't see enough of that. So I definitely think that that is something, but we'll definitely explore more of this in our vampire episode because you cannot talk about vampires without talking about sexuality in general, because vampires are, in my opinion, all about sex. A lot of it is about sex and our views of sex and sexuality. Um, it is. Yes. So I'm looking forward to that episode a lot because I love, love, love <laughs> vampires. I absolutely love vampires. I think it's, it fascinates me. Um, but yeah, definitely, definitely interview with the vampire was. Yeah. I mean, uh, with a lot of the characters in there, every single male yeah, character. It's pretty heavily implied. <laughs> yeah. There's a with lot every male of character. There's a couple of, I think, uh, uh, Dracula, like not Dracula, but like vampire films of the early like 30s and 40s in which women vampires are definitely coded as lesbians who are preying on the young innocent women, which is frankly how lesbians were perceived. And again, like I see how I see how they ended up getting out the gay community ends up being coded as the villain in large part because of the Hakes Hayes Code going back to the 30s. Um, but also because when I think about the fact that this, like, the mental health profession, society at large, like, the medical profession, the literally considered this community mentally ill up until the 80s. Like, it may, you might make the argument a little bit earlier, depending on who you were or where you were, but the way that, I mean, we'll talk about this when we talk about ableism in horror films, but they literally looked at this as like, I, this is a mental illness. This was, and so of course, if you're psychotic, yeah, if you're like, homosexuality is part of a psychosis, therefore they must, that makes them a great crazy killer. And it's really disgusting to think that that's that's how we treated this large portion of our community for so long. And mm-hmm. I think it's time for horror to correct that. <laughs> Again, if you're writing these films, <laughs> you find yeah. yourself coding your villain, your killer as gay or as trans. I want you to stop. Put that pen down for a minute and really think about what you're doing. <laughs> Well, and, and the thing, the truth is there um, is conversion therapy still exists today. So this isn't something that has completely gone away. Um, There are still people who do consider it a mental illness. Uh, There are still people who think you can be cured. Um, So quote unquote cured. Um, So yeah, so it's still an issue today. So if you see it portrayed that way more, it, it, um, 
it can add validity to your argument, whether you mean it to or not. So that's why it can be very harmful. And this goes for everything we've talked about. So that's why these tropes can be harmful. And, you know, I love some movies that have these harmful tropes in them. Like I said, Poltergeist was the very first horror movie I ever saw, and I still love that movie. So there are a lot of these that I know have issues to them. Um, so, but but I think we really need to make changes there. And I just, I just hope people do. Yeah. So, yeah. Psycho and, is still a masterpiece. I yeah. It's still, mm-hmm. a, it's still a really... Yeah. Brilliantly made film. And it does star somebody dressing as a woman being portrayed as absolutely psychotic, literally psycho. And that that is the root of his. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maladies. (laughs) Yeah. And as people know now, Anthony Perkins uh, was a gay man. So, and he wasn't out because in that time you couldn't really be out, out in Hollywood. Um, It's even hard now for people sometimes to be out in Hollywood. So, but, but yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's one area where, you know, and maybe I'm just blind to it, but I think it still needs some improvement. I think it has gotten better, but it still has a way to go. Um, and the other, the last one I want to talk a little bit about is ableism, because I think that's something we don't talk about as much as these other things. Um, and that goes in for a broad array of things. People still say, um, phrases that are microaggressions, um, you know, little things like that guy is crazy. Um, She's such a psycho, that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not going to say some of these other things. I'm not going to say the R word on here. Yeah, but I and I won't say the R word on here because, yeah. But you'll even see people who are supposedly fighting for justice using the R word. You'll see it all the time. I see it online. I've seen it other places um, and heard it other places. Um So I want to talk a little bit about that because what you can see in horror movies a lot is you can see someone who is quote unquote crazy, um, quote unquote has a mental illness. And of course they are the villains when in reality, people with mental illness are far more likely to be the victims than the perpetrators of a crime. So I want to say that up front. Um, because that doesn't get say, said enough. People just instantly think anyone who does this um, or anyone who has a mental illness that they would be capable of this. And I can say personally, that's not true. So I want to talk about some of those those portrayals and um, if it's any better, uh, Rebecca. So this is one that I had actually thought about a lot. I had been kind of paying attention to this idea, as I mentioned in our Why We Love Horror episode, the first movie that I saw that I can remember, like the first horror movie that I can remember seeing that really scared the crap out of me was a Audrey Hepburn film called Wait Until Dark. And if you don't know the plot of the film, Audrey Hepburn plays a blind woman in this movie. And she is being stalked by killers and... I think that's part of what makes it terrifying, first of all, is that you have your lead character that you as the audience know the danger that she's in, and she literally cannot see it. 
And I think that's why I've seen, I've seen several times in horror films where somebody is physically disabled in some way. And again, I think that it's something that the horror film genre has relied on before as clearly this person is much like the way misogyny kind of fed into the idea that women are automatically going to be a victim because you're clearly at a disadvantage, you're weak. I think that a lot of our beliefs about the disabled community have also played into some of these problems in horror films. But again, I think that where horror films have taken the opportunity over time to turn that around is that I've seen horror films in which, like Wait Until Dark, she's able to use her disability to her advantage. And I've seen this a couple of times. Like I've kind of found myself making a mental list as I watch films for like, hey, how have we been able to, like, how has the disabled community been able to, like, be represented in this? If there's a disabled character, The Quiet Place is, or A Quiet Place is another example that I found really interesting from the last year in which basically a girl is both at a severe disadvantage because she is deaf and therefore can't hear the sounds that are going to attract these, you know, these monstrous killers, these monsters from outer space, wherever they've come from (laughs) that are going to rip them to pieces. But at the same time, her family has been able to survive because they can communicate through sign language they are like they she's eventually able to use her hearing aid to sorry spoiler alert for those who haven't seen the end of the movie she's able to use her hearing aid to create a frequency that kills these monsters um which i think is kind of awesome i'm like yes use the hearing aid uh there's also the film hush in which a deaf woman once again is it reminded me a lot of wait until dark because you automatically believe that she's at a disadvantage because she's deaf and she's being stalked by a killer coming to her house. But she's able to triumph in the end. And I love that you're able to hear her thoughts within the film. Um, But I also realized that a lot of these characters are not played by somebody who is actually disabled, which especially in the case of, say, Bird Box, which was super popular on Netflix last year. Uh, the Quiet Place is the Quiet Place is an exception because the young actress in that film is deaf, and so they did. She's she's been fluent in sign language <laughs> her whole life. Like Audrey Hepburn, not blind. Like this, these are. This is a community who also deserves to get their stories told. And I think that it's something that I don't think that the horror genre has always been very good about doing. I think that you do get examples like some of the ones I mentioned where you have somebody who you, this is a character that you, the way we've been conditioned to see the disabled community is that, oh, you're blind, you're deaf, you've, you are in a wheelchair, you poor thing, you're automatic like you you as a horror film watcher are kind of automatically conditioned to think like oh well this person's just serial killer fodder (laughs) like of course they're gonna be the first one to go and i think that it's it's great that there are horror films that have broken away from that and so like 
they're able to to defeat the killer they're able to defeat the monsters they are able to use their like their disability in a way that's to their advantage but that community i don't think it's to tell their own stories very often and that's it yeah and in hush also she um and hush she did not did not have a dis she did not was not um I'm sorry, was not. Uh, She's deaf not hearing impaired. Yeah, she wasn't deaf, and the, the actress in real life. I'm sorry, was not is not really deaf, and I think that's important to say that about that movie because I love that movie. I do. I do too. Um, but that's a problem because it's not like you couldn't find an actress to play that role. <laughs> it's not like there aren't actresses out there. That's see, that's an excuse that is used a lot with casting as oh well we well we can find anyone or we just went with the best one and it's it's just a bunch of bs um because you know that's that's a problem is i think people especially in this area with with ableism they think it's a bit differently they think of it not the same way as like even though this still happens as if someone who is white playing um a person of color um people don't see this in the same light. They don't see this as insulting as that, as that is, or how, or how wrong that is, or how that can be um, pursued, sorry, perceived as like an aggression um, perceived Mm -hmm. as ableist. um, The fact that you won't cast someone because um, like when you see people being cast as trans characters that are not trans and then it can be a way of still not accepting the trans community. Um, if you have a man um, who isn't trans playing that character and then you see them out of their wardrobe for that movie and then, you know, you don't you can still be like, oh, well, um, a trans woman isn't beautiful or that, that that kind of thing. So it's or not see the trans person as or trans women or just men in dresses. That's that was something that came up frequently in I, the disclosure yeah. documentary. Yeah. yeah, which which I've mentioned that on here before. That documentary, it's a really good documentary. It is, but yeah, that's that's another thing. Um, and mental illness, of course, um, is portrayed a lot as you know, if you have a mental illness, you are unhinged. If you don't take your meds, you're going to go off the deep end. Um, you know, that's that I think is a big problem in all movies, um, the way we portray mental illness. And we're going to do a whole episode about that next year. Um, but the way we portray that and film has a long way to go. I think that is really only starting to sort of change just a tad bit. Um, and, you know, I mentioned the movie Bug on here when I talked about why we love horror and Bug is a very interesting movie because Bug is very much about psychosis. Um, It could even be talked about as being about schizophrenia, but it's also about a shared psychosis um, to people who are lost and find each other in this one man's delusion that he has bugs all over him and that there are bugs everywhere. Um. And that's why I think a lot of people didn't like that movie is because they thought it was really going to be about bugs being everywhere. But it's really it's about a shared delusion and it's a really sad and tragic movie. Um, And I could see how 
I didn't have a problem with it, but I can see how people might have a problem with it because once again, it is showing um, mental illness only in the downside. But the downside really is you have someone who has never dealt with their trauma, meeting up with another person who is getting away from an abusive relationship and they just kind of come together and meld together in this own shared psychosis, basically. Um, it's a very, very interesting movie. I think it's an excellent movie. I think it's great. I know it was one of the few movies that ever received an F cinema score from uh, people leaving the movie. But I think that's because people thought they were going to get a regular horror movie and it's not. So, yeah. So that's, but that's another case where you could look at that and think that. Um, I wanted to briefly mention a movie though, when we're talking about, um, when we were talking about um, blind people in films or blind characters in movies, there's a movie called Don't Breathe, which I don't know if you saw this, Rebecca, from 2016. I have not seen this one, but I remember the yeah, and, and the villain is a blind man. Um, and so that's why it's called Don't Breathe. You make any noises and he will hear you. It's actually a really, really good movie. Um, and I don't, and it's not, the blindness is not presented as this is why he is um, an evil man. There's a There's a specific reason why he is a bad guy. Um, and it's more of this vengeful avenging thing that he's doing. Um, but it is used in where instead of having it be where the hero is blind and they're using their, their blindness to their advantage to help and to figure things out because they might be able to hear better, something like that. Um, or as far as how it's portrayed, um, in here, it's more, the villain is using the fact that they, that he has a heightened sense of hearing, heightened sense of smell. Um, he also has a dog that comes into play a lot. But because of that, that's it's kind of a, a, a benefit. It also is something that other characters use as a disadvantage to him, too. So that, that's another interesting one to look at. And once again, the blind man, though, is not portrayed by um, an actor who is blind. In real life, at least, I don't believe he is. I was trying to look, but yeah, I'm pretty sure he's he not. Is. Yeah, Stephen Lang is not not yeah. blind in real life. Um, so that that's that's people, another one as well. Like, speaking of like ableism and like portraying the villains, I noticed that frequently, uh, either missing a limb is like frequently your villains, and not just in horror films, but in a lot of films have some sort of disfigurement or frequently um, limb loss, like amputees, et cetera, that are immediately portrayed as scary. And thinking about Candyman, Candyman has a hook for a hand. Like, I'm, like, I can think of other instances where that's, it's kind of an immediate uh, indication of something's gone wrong. And I think that... I think that I can think of a few cases where very few, like where that's not the case. Like the first thing that comes to mind is actually the walking dead in which, uh, Oh, I'm blanking on the actor's name gets bitten on the leg and they immediately amputate his leg and he gets to live for, I think another season, like half a season. 
as an amputee before <laughs> before he's killed off for the zombies. Uh, but I like I'm trying to think of uh, I'm trying to think of like other amputees in films, even or other people with limb loss or limb difference that so portrayed as a villain. <laughs> Or even things like um, Freddy Krueger having severe burns across his entire body. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. You have um, Jason. You have Jason Voorhees, who had hydrocephalus, which I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Um, so you have that as well, and he and he also had um, mental disabilities. Um, so you have him becoming uh, probably one of the most well known killers ever. <laughs> So you have that as Two well. Two of the big three trifecta of of the serial killer genre mm-hmm. having deformities or disabilities in some way, mental and physical. Um, I do want to point out, though, as far as like improving representation, uh, the actress Jamie Brewer from American Horror Story. I think she's one. Of, I think she may be the first, or at least one of the first. Uh, actors with Down syndrome to have a leading, like, recurring role in a series like this, certainly within the the horror film genre. And I love the fact that, like, her Down syndrome is brought up in the first season of the series, but when she makes appearances as characters later, it's not necessarily. Like, season three is one of my favorites of, of that show, much more for the beginning of the series than the end of it. I thought the end sort of fell off the rails. Spring only happens with Ryan Murphy Productions. <laughs> but I loved that Nan, the character that she, that Jamie Brewer plays in Coven in the third season of American Horror Story, she is a witch. She's telepathic. Um, her Down syndrome is never really brought up. In fact, when one of the other characters is like, oh, well, you clearly still have to be a virgin. Like, Basically, who's going to have sex with you? She went, I'll have you know that I'm not a virgin. Men tend to find me appealing. <laughs> it's like, here you go. Way to go. Show that the a person with developmental disabilities is not your automatic charity case. <laughs> Ryan Murphy. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan Murphy is a very interesting um, creator to examine. And that's why we're going to do a whole month on him Um, because he's done some not so great things. And then he's done some great things. And for every step forward, sometimes he takes a step back. Um, And, American Horror Story is a very interesting thing to even to look at um, the way he deals with a lot of different people. Um, And he, of course, uses a lot of the same actors he's known for doing this and not just an American Horror Story. But yeah, Ryan Murphy is just is just a really interesting case study in this and in representation and then how he represents people and some of the progress he has made um, and some other things that he hasn't done so well. Um, the fact that some, a lot of his shows start out strong and then fall apart. Um, and then there have been cases where it's the opposite of that. Um, and I think 
I think like his shows, like I think his series um, American Crime Story are actually really good um, and don't fall apart as much as some of American Horror Story does. I actually liked the last season of American Horror Story, which was very much a take on the slasher. And a lot of people did not like it. A lot of people hated it. And I think, yeah. And I think it's one one of the few that has like a really happy ending, not to spoil anything, but it actually has a pretty happy ending, which is very rare. And also, um, I want to definitely point out that in that, speaking of representation, and this is more of trans representation, you have Angelica Ross um, in there. And it's never and it's never brought up. It's never like, oh, she's trans. That's never a part of her character. You know, she's just a badass woman. So it's so. never really, yeah. So it's never really brought up. And I think that's, that's really important to mention, especially when it comes to Ryan Murphy, who in Ryan Murphy, Ryan Murphy with um, Nip Tuck did not do too well with representing trans people. There was, there's a whole big thing and we'll get into that when we talk about Nip Tuck. Um, but anyway, but sorry, we got on off on a Ryan Murphy tangent there. Um <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think this is another area. Ableism is another area where we need improvement. Um, and I think this is one that is very, very slow on getting improvement in Hollywood in general. Um, you know, I, I do think, you know, speaking of Ryan Murphy, when you have shows like, like Ratchet, which is dealing with mental health and mental health facilities, you know, in, you know, a long, long time ago. And, and they deal a lot with um, treating people for being gay and being a lesbian and trying to do um, lobotomies on them and being that be a cure for um, everything, <laughs> every problem you could possibly <laughs> have. But the way mental illness was treated um, back then was horrendous. Uh, mental health facilities were horrendous. Yeah. So that is very accurate and it is a very true thing, even though it is dialed up to 20,000 because it's Ryan Murphy. Um, it still is a big, a big, a big thing that was back then. And still mental health care is um, very low on the totem pole. People don't focus on it en- enough. It's never really talked about that much. Um, it's kind of a dirty little secret still, I think, sadly. Um, I think it's one of those. Th- and I think a lot of it is because you can't necessarily see it. Um, it's mm-hmm. not necessarily visible. And so people don't want to talk about it. I think also people are afraid if they talk about it, people are afraid that they'll go quote unquote crazy. Um, mm-hmm. People are afraid of their own stability. So I think that's why it's not talked about or dealt with at all on a basic human level. Um, you know, so I think that's that's another area that needs to change all around. I think there are some things that have gotten it right. I think there are some movies that have gotten it right. I think there are some things that have tackled it differently. I think there are um, some ways where where you will see a lot of um, PTSD is a big thing in horror movies, I think. Um, with Sleepaway Camp, that's really what that was, is someone with severe PTSD yeah. <laughs> who had never dealt with. Um, but PTSD is a big oh, thing you will see in horror. You'll see it, I mean, really in the latest Halloween um, Lori is still has PTSD. She's dealing with PTSD. Um, and that's why I love that movie. And that's why I think, um, 
you know, I know Jamie Lee Curtis has talked about how great it is to see what happens to these final girls, what happens to these people when they're put through this trauma and how do they deal with it mentally? Because you kind of just end the movies there. You end the movies with the trauma um, and how do people survive that? So watching that, and sometimes you'll see it in sequels, but so watching a movie years later and seeing Lori, you know, being, you know, basically this prepper <laughs> prepping for the day <laughs> Michael's going to return. Um, while that is a good thing, it turns out at the same time, she's ostracized her family. Um, you know, she's thought of as quote unquote crazy. Um, you know, so she's the black sheep of the family now, um, that kind of thing. So, so that's, that's an interesting one too, but, um, and I don't know if, the, if we kind of went off the rails there, but I think it all kind of ties together there. But yeah, PTSD is one thing that I think horror films sometimes handle better than other things they try to handle in horror movies. <laughs> but, well, like, it, I mean, you bring up mental illness. Talk about another trope of the genre, the haunted mental asylum. The The mental asylum is the place where you, you go to be tortured, which is a reflection of a very real part of mental health care, not just in the United States, but around the world. In many cases, still how mental health care is treated in parts of the world where it is an asylum. It's basically a prison. Um, talk about being afraid of dealing with mental health care issues if that's where you're going to go. <laughs> If this is the setting of horror films, <laughs> it's like seeing, you know, all of the rednecks, slashers in the woods, demonic possession in the woods films, and then saying, so you could really use a retreat to the mountains. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, talk about something that's like, this is, this has become a part of the horror genre is the idea that the asylum this is a place where there's torture. Mental health care is not something where you're going to get better. It is something where you are going to be tormented and probably murdered and your ghost will then haunt the place forever. Well, and I will say from personal experience, um, I have been in psychiatric facilities before. I've been hospitalized a couple times in my life. And I will say it is not a pleasant experience. Um the way you are treated leading up to that is not a pleasant experience. Um, it feels more like a punishment all the time. That's really what it feels like. Um, there can be good sides to it. Um, I do think sometimes it can save your life because you're put in a safe space. But the way you're treated while that happens isn't necessarily great and wonderful. And I'm not saying it's like torture or anything like that, at least not for me. And I'm not saying that hasn't happened to people still. Um, but, but, but it is a very, a, a very weird process. Um, and I'll get into that more next year when we talk about um, mental health portrayals and, and mental illness portrayals and in, in film, because I, I really will talk a lot about that, a lot about my own personal experiences, because it's really is a very sad and lonely thing. And when you're already in a place where you're um, suicidal or where you're on the edge, going through that is not necessarily a thing that helps you feel better right away. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's, and then 
it's a traumatic experience being in, in a hospital. And it so it's like if you already have traumatic experiences, it adds to your trauma and it makes your trauma bigger too. So in a way, I think when horror films deal with that, I actually think in a lot of ways that is a more accurate area that they deal with. I know it's heightened, but it is kind of accurate. And I want to quickly point out, and then we're going to wrap up because you made me think of that. This one, um, Rebecca, is Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, which takes place in a um, psychiatric unit with teenagers. And um, of course, nobody is going to believe them because, hey, they've got mental health issues. So of course, you know, some guy is trying to kill them in their dreams, but that's not really happening. And it also served as a way for Freddie to kill people and make it look like various ways of suicide, various forms of suicide, really. Um, So I, I think that movie is actually a pretty and I don't know, people may disagree with me, but I think that's actually a pretty positive portrayal just because it also really realistically shows how society treats people with mental illness um, and how much we gaslight people with mental illness. So I think that that is really uh, a really, really interesting film to take look at. And I think that's why that's one of my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street movies because of that. Yeah. And and I know a lot of people that love that series think of it as one of the best ones. Um, but yeah, so I just wanted to briefly mention that one. So I don't know if you saw Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Rebecca. I actually did not. You should see that should one. See you really should see that one. Plus, Nancy's in it. Nancy's in it. I love Nancy. She's my favorite. Yeah, Nancy's in that one. So you should definitely, definitely see that. Yeah. And you get to see a a young um, Patricia Arquette. Yeah. And so Nightmare on Elm Street 3 also features a very young Patricia Arquette. So, yeah. And her character. Oh, well, I won't say. Never mind, because I don't want to spoil it for you, Rebecca. So, but yeah, it features her and... um, Jennifer Rubin and it's an and, and it's an and another reason to point this one out is you also have the character of Kincaid which is a young black man who's in there and he's um, I'm not going to spoil that either but it's just a really nice portrayal in that one as well so yeah so definitely check that one out I think that one's a really really good one it's got some very memorable lines too with some very memorable kills I will say as well so nice. one with a tv that yeah okay okay we're gonna go ahead and wrap things up now and it's just rebecca so rebecca if you want to tell everyone where they can find you so if you want to tell me where i can find some good horror films with some great representation of any minority group or the disabled community or women you can tweet me at Rebecca Jacobson. That's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-J-A-C-O-B-S-O-N. Yes, that is my entire Twitter handle. <laughs> cool. And you'll have to start checking Twitter more. No. <laughs> I think I will. I hope so. Talk to me, people. I need help learning Twitter. I'm old. Well, Twitter was actually, well, first I was on Facebook and then I joined Twitter and I was actually more into Twitter for a long time than Facebook. I actually preferred Twitter to Facebook Um, and Facebook, you know, has its issues too, but yeah. (laughs) 
And this is Erin. You can follow me on Twitter at EAprilBeauty. The E and the A and the B are capitalized. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod. On Twitter at fandom thing pod. No it's in that one. On Instagram at it's a fandom thing pod. If you have any horror films you want to give a shout out to during this month if, or if you have any feedback at all, feel free to email us at it's a fandom thing pod at gmail.com. And please, please rate and review us and follow us on all your favorite podcast platforms and please really do that on apple Podcasts because every review and rating everything like that helps us get found in that big wide world of podcasts so thank you very much and on our next episode we are going to be talking about slasher films and the final girl trope which uh we have already recorded it so i know it's a really good episode so i'm looking forward to everyone hearing that so until next time remember it's a fandom thing and Black Lives Matter. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.